Some years ago, the Times newspaper uh, invited writers and thinkers of that day to, uh, to send in contributions to the question, what's wrong with the world? Open for, for many people to, uh, to comment on what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton, a, a Roman Catholic writer and thinker, wrote this. Dear sirs, in response to the question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I want us to stop for a moment and just think about that. What's wrong with the world? I am. I wonder, just, we'll stop and be quiet. How much does that resonate with you? And how much does that maybe jar with you and make you kind of inside? Let's just be quiet for a moment. Let me just read that very short passage to you again from Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get but the tax collector stood at a distance he wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said God have mercy on me a sinner I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Just looking at that passage, verse 9 sets out really clearly for us just to whom it was that Jesus was speaking. He's using the parable to speak to some who were confident in their own righteousness. The ESV translation of the Bible puts it like this, very similar, but it says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. King James Version, instead of saying looking down on others or treating them with contempt, actually says they despised others. That's really pretty strong, isn't it? Looking down on somebody, despising somebody, 
Those are, seem to us to be quite different things, but maybe as we look at this passage, we'll see that they're not so very different. And Jesus uses a parable to illustrate what he wants to say. And so presumably, he was speaking not just to Pharisees here. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Paul very helpfully tried to to give us a picture that I think Tom Wright uh, was, was using. That actually the Pharisees were people who were desperately trying to uphold God's law. In many senses, they were the good guys. They were people that were trying to do right. And they were trying to help others do right. But they do seem to come in for a bit of flack from time to time. Perhaps we feel like we, 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 we kind of fit into that description of the Pharisees where we're trying to do right. We're trying to do what God would have us do. But maybe these words speak to us, even though we wouldn't consider ourselves experts in the law. We wouldn't consider ourselves to be Pharisees in that kind of pejorative sense. We can say to somebody, oh, he's such a Pharisee. We have to ask, why was Jesus using this parable? Why did he maybe call upon the Pharisees as examples of what he wanted to teach against? And maybe we need to ask the question, could this be for me today? I want us to very quickly have a look at three traits of the Pharisee in this parable. And they're all easily and pretty obviously accessible in there. Verse 11, we see that the the Pharisee was proud. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. (laughs) Okay. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it, as he goes through. he, He sets out his achievements, who he is and and how good he is compared to others. Again, other other translations of the Bible just, just work out a different place to put that word himself. In the ESV, again, the Pharisee stands by himself and prays. You can kind of imagine him just almost sort of standing forward, away from the rest of the, the gathered congregation and just making it known. But whatever the word order, wherever that himself fits in, it's clear that the Pharisee was more interested in himself than in worshipping God. And he was proud. points out how much better he is than others in verse 12. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. Things that Pharisees undertook to do and he's holding to them. 
And coming on from that first trait of pride, there's a second one there that's in those same two verses. There's a critical spirit that emerges from these words as he looks down on other people and their failings. Because externally, he looks pretty good. He measures up pretty well. And he sees others that certainly don't measure up as well as he does. And actually, out of that pride, out of that critical spirit, the first two traits, the third trait is there's a real absence of mercy in what he says. He got no time for people who mess up. There's kind of an attitude of, I've been through stuff, I've lived my life, and I've managed to avoid doing that and that and that, so why the dickens can't they? They just need to pull their socks up. It's the kind of attitude that's emanating from that. And actually, there's a recurrent theme of that. Paul touched on it in, in, in his passage a couple of weeks ago in Luke's Gospel in, in chapter 7. The woman who had been forgiven much, loved much, and the one who had been forgiven little was unable to love more than a little. Matthew chapter 9, there's another incident where, where Jesus is sitting with, with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees say to his disciples, what is this man doing? He's sitting with sinners, evil people. And Jesus hears them and says, I, I didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinners. He uses the analogy, the well don't come to see a doctor. It's only the sick that have need of a doctor. And then at the end of that little passage is a really important theme which is so absent from this Pharisee. See, Jesus says that I don't require sacrifice, but I require mercy. Quoting the Old Testament where that theme of mercy comes time and again. See, the people of Israel had a real sense of this. And actually, the people of Israel are a recurrent picture of this. The people of Israel were shown grace, un unmerited favour by God, chosen. And yet, time and again, they forget their unmerited favour and they go their own way. Stuff goes belly up. They think, huh? eventually they come back to God and God receives them back and then they go their own way and stuff goes belly up and they go huh and they come back to God and God receives them and asks them to deal justly with mercy and here this Pharisee there is no mercy there is just pride and a critical spirit and it feels very caricatured. It feels very stark and hard. 
But actually, pride is something that, if we're honest, we all struggle with in one way or another. Maybe we don't recognise it. But actually, it's something that is so easy to develop in our own lives. Pride so quickly develops a, a kind of an over-developed sense of ourself and our importance. And so often it's at the expense of other people. I love the story of Muhammad Ali, great boxer of the, what, 1970s, 70s, 60s, 70s? There you go. Muhammad Ali, on an aeroplane. He's off to an engagement somewhere, so he's now famous. Fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee. That's why my name is Muhammad Ali. He was not particularly shy about his abilities. Actually, no, he was pretty big-headed. And he was well-known for being big-headed. And he was on this plane. And the plane hit some serious turbulence. And so you get the boom, that really annoying sound on an aeroplane. But the light goes on to put on your seatbelts. <laughs> Juggling around. Everyone else is putting on their seatbelts. Muhammad Ali's sitting there. And the, the, the flight attendant notices that Muhammad Ali, in spite of the plane kind of juggling around and everybody else kind of clinging on to their seatbelts now because it's not good, she has to make her way down the plane and say, Sir, would you mind putting your seatbelt on? The sign's up. And he responds, Ma'am, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant responds, Sir, Superman don't need no plane. Fasten your seatbelt. See, he was so full of himself. Actually, he put somebody else in danger because of his own self-inflated ego, I guess. He was the best of the best. But he still didn't need to be a big head. <laughs> there you go. But you know, this passage speaks powerfully to us today. It speaks powerfully, actually, not just to us as individuals, but as church, as the Christian church. And we are representatives of the church. We are the church here today. I think one of the great criticisms of the church is that we can be so cold. We can seem so proud and critical and judgmental of others. I'm sure that's the last thing we want, isn't it? We don't want to be seen as, as proud and cold and judgmental, do we? maybe you did no thank you Whew. I'm really glad about that suddenly saying no of course we don't but actually we can so easily fall into the trap of the Pharisee in this story because when it comes to, to issues of morality of issues of, of trying to live our lives right the church can get very very judgmental and it's not that, that we need to make a stand for issues of, of morality and conduct in our lives. That's so important. But how do we do that? I guess the antidote 
is a big word. Maybe a difficult word. Or maybe it's just a simple word. Humility. That's the antidote to this. Humility. And of course, those of you who've said, actually, yes, I need Jesus to forgive me. I need Jesus as my saviour. I need Jesus in my life. And I need him so that I can walk with God, forgiven of my sinfulness. Of course, at that moment where we recognise that, we, we took a big dose of humility. To follow Jesus requires humility. But as we go along the way, pride can creep in. And there's a repeated affirmation of the virtue of, 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 of humility in the Old Testament. Proverbs is full of commendations of humility, standing alongside wisdom. And the New Testament, again, there are it, many occasions where pride is, is, is scotched and humility is called upon. Philippians 2, verse 3. In Colossians 3, verse 12. Let me just read one of those two. Colossians 3, verse 12, says this. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Oh, no, verse 12, I was reading verse 13. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Passage in Philippians refers to Jesus as an example of humility, who being in very nature God did not seek equality with God, but came as a servant. In James chapter 3, 1 Peter 5, other examples of of that need for humility. We need humility to recognise that we can't approach God in our own strength. Nothing we can do, no matter how gifted we are, no matter how able we are, nothing we can do can earn us favour with God. We can't buy God's favour by being a faithful servant. We can just about buy the favour of other people by doing that. But we can't earn God's favour. And of course, if that's the way we're trying to operate, then pride soon comes in. And we get really ticked off when somebody doesn't respond to to our efforts in the way that we want. Whereas when we're serving God in humility, it's not about us, it's about him. And of course, this humility will have a knock-on effect. Instead of having a critical spirit like the Pharisee, then we'll look not at other people's and look down our nose at them, but we'll look at ourselves. Look at our own sin, our own lives. 
I wonder how often do we hear a message in church and think, flipping heck, oh, so-and-so could really do a hearing this one. And maybe old so-and-so could do with hearing this one. But how often do we immediately come back and say, but no, what do I need to hear? What is God saying to me in this? Because of course we can minister to other people. But the danger is we ignore ourselves. Jesus talked about the plank in our own eye and the speck in somebody else's eye, didn't he? So I reckon G.K. Chesterton, he kind of understood and took on board this passage. I think he was responding like the tax collector. It's lovely if you look at the two contrasts in the passage. The, the, the Pharisee standing and all about himself. The tax collector standing at a distance. Not feeling able to, to kind of trumpet himself, but just aware of who he is before God. Unable even to raise his head heavenward but says quite simply, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It could feel, of course, that, that this kind of call to humility is kind of paralysing, that it's about us all going around in sackcloth and ashes and saying, oh, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, and being bowed and cowed. That's not what God wants, because look in verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. You see, when we turn to Jesus and ask him to forgive us, when we turn to Jesus and ask him to take our lives and help us, we didn't need to go around cowed and bowed, but we can go about our lives knowing that actually we're on his team. We've been chosen to do the job that we've got to do and we are on his team called to get on with the job that he's given us to do. Forgive the footballing analogy if you would. But I noticed yesterday, Ryan Giggs played his 999th game for Manchester United. That's not bad going. He's a bit younger than me as well, so that's good. But 999 games for Manchester United. Now, Ryan Giggs is by no means perfect. He's been in the media for various little indiscretions. But by and large... If you know anything of Ryan Giggs, you would know that he's a consummate professional. He gets on with the job he's been given to do, and he does it blooming well. Others look up to him as somebody who is able and who has been able to perform at the very highest level. 
whilst others behave like prima donnas, the Carlos Tevezes of this world, the Mario Balotelli's of this world who come and are so consumed by their own ability that they self-destruct half the time. But actually, I think the tax collector was able to go away a little bit like a Ryan Giggs, able to go and get on with the job that God has called him to do, standing straight, aware of the grace of God that allows him to get on with his life and honour God in all that he does. God wants us to walk with him in humility and to reflect his glory. And that is good news. It's not about being bowed and cowed, but neither is it about being proud and arrogant. We have a lifetime's journey of learning humility, of relating to others in humility, of loving one another and bearing one another in humility. And opportunities like this morning as we share in communion are powerful opportunities to come again in humility. To be overwhelmed by the grace of God shown in Jesus dying for us. We're going to take a couple of songs as we come to communion this morning. To allow us just to prepare our hearts, perhaps to allow God to speak into our lives the the wonder of his love for us. Let's just pause for a moment to think on the Pharisee and the tax collector. How Jesus revealed the Pharisee's heart and the antidote to the Pharisee's heart, which is in humility.